I'm Jonathan Mann. I'm Matt Condon. And this is Digitally Rare, a show about digitally owned things today, right now, and also in the past. What? Yeah. So this week we talked to OG crypto art and NFT guru. You all know him. He's Jason Bailey of Art Gnome. And we let off our discussion by playing a clip for Jason of him in May of 2019 at Rare AF2. Um, Matt, tell us a little bit about what we were doing at Rare AF2 all those years ago. Well, we figured we'd record a podcast guerrilla style. Uh, bringing the microphone to the people. And uh, the safest place and quietest place to do that was this rather abandoned stairwell <laughs> around the corner from the venue. And so we, we ushered everyone into the stairwell, um, everyone very confused, and then asked them for their hot take on the ecosystem. What were they thinking about and where would it go? And if you want to hear this episode, it's it's, it's actually only a few episodes back because we took such a long break. Um, so you can find that. It's the hot takes episode. Um, but so we played this clip for Jason, basically, of him giving us his hot take. And then and then we asked him for his thoughts on whether or not his prediction slash hot take thing stands the test of time. So let's travel now back to May of 2019 in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in an abandoned stairwell, and hear Jason Bailey's Let's hot take it back, 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 back. Okay, so my, my hot take is that we've got... Maybe, I'm not going to say too many, but we've got a whole lot of artists making a whole lot of artwork, a whole lot of companies, right, um, that want to help these artists. But we don't really have uh, that many collectors yet. And I think we're at a saturation point where we've actually got more tools and more people making than we can sustain, right, through collecting. So what does that mean? I think it means that all of these companies, if they don't, not just like uh, not go after each other competitively, competitively, but if they don't literally just unite and partner across the board, that we're going to see sort of a waning interest in this space. Um, and we need to grow. We all, the artists, like the companies, the people that write about this stuff, the podcasters, everybody needs to work together to grow the collector base. Right. Or else, uh, I think, by this time next year, no one's going to give a shit. Yeah. I think that's I, that is, that's mm-hmm. for sure. that's a big one. So that was your assessment 18 months ago. What's changed since then? How do you feel about that assessment now? I remember being in the in the electrical closet and Rare AF two relative to Rare AF one. Um, you know, Rare AF one there was like this fever pitch. Everyone was like, people were like flying in from all around the world. Uh, yeah. Bitcoin and Ethereum, much like today. We're spiking and hitting new levels, right? And there was this, I, I argued then, you know, gold rush kind of mentality. It was exciting and there were a lot of creatives there, but there was this this something in electricity in the air that like big things were happening every second and like we were in on something new and like, you know, the room was full beyond capacity and you got the sense that if there were a rare AF 1.1 the next month, it would be double the size. Like right. everything was just growing. Rare AF2, just one year later, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum had, had, you know, fallen way down back to earth. The only people at Rare AF2 were like the people that were like genuinely into the art and nerdy about art and blockchain. Um, You know, probably it felt like a significantly smaller number of people, which when I walked through the door, I thought, okay, this is going to be, um, you know, this is a long way to drive and this is going to be way less fun than Rare AF uh, yeah, yeah. 1, right? But yeah. then I realized, wait, this is just all the people I actually like who are in this <laughs> for like sincere reasons because right. all the speculation is gone, right? Yeah. Um, and so then when we did our hot takes, you know, it's interesting when you say, you know, you remind me of what I had said then. Yeah. In today's context, it feels I almost feel like hypocritical because one of the big messages I talk about that we might get to is how you need to think more abundantly and artists shouldn't artificially reduce you know, how much they produce or put out there. Mm-hmm. And I, But I think when you put the context around what I said in, during Rare AF2, it wasn't that you know we didn't have enough collectors, meaning like you know we have to have some massive amount. It looked like we almost had no collectors, right? So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, right? right. So, 
Um, people forget, they look at the success of where we're at now with single yeah. artists selling like hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars of work. It's like every week a new record is being broken yeah. and it feels like it was always this way. But the, the, you know, the quick way that I try to catch people up with what I've seen is, you know, Rare AF1, everyone was excited about the prospect, but, but a lot of these tech folks that were building the platforms didn't come from art and there weren't enough artists, right? So there were... Uh, super rare and all these other platforms were reaching out to me because of my background yeah. in art and saying right. like hey do you know any artists and that was the crisis early on in, in 2018 right fast forward to 2000 or to uh 2019 rare af2 and the crisis is okay we found all these artists they're all making really cool stuff right. and nobody's buying it right and and the only people that were buying it were kind of um dorks like or, or nerds like us right, right. who we're doing it because uh, not because there was any sign whatsoever that we'd be able to ever resell any of it. I mean, you couldn't even find anyone to buy anything the first time. This is another point that you made that you made then, which is like, you know, we're just three crazy people standing in an unfinished stairwell. Like we're the only ones that care about this stuff at this point. Yeah, right. And it was totally true. And, and I think for that reason, our motivations it wasn't like, you know, we looked at each other and snickered and we're like, we'll show them, wait until like a year later when we can yeah. sell this stuff for like yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. It was like the honest sentiment was like, you know, five collectors or whatever, you know, on average there were across some of these platforms mm -hmm. clearly isn't going to be enough for any ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that wasn't all that much of a hot take because when I listened to the other hot takes, I think the general sentiment was like, is this going to be around next year? Is this like, going to work? Yeah. Right, right. So then um, what happened, um, you know, maybe during the time that I think you guys, like you said, you know, kind of stepped away for a little bit was around the beginning of 2020. And this is what I keep reminding folks. Um, mm -hmm. It was around the beginning of 2020 that a handful of folks that had, you know, uh, a fair amount, I mean, you know, markets are, are at least some, Bea might disagree with me, but markets are always at least somewhat driven by money. So someone has to have some money at some point, right, um, to, to, to add some gas to the car. And some folks that had a fair amount of money, you know, sometimes referred to as whales, you know, four or five folks came into the space early in the year um, and started buying, uh, you know, buying work. And it triggered more interest from, from other people. And that's around the time, you know, I, I actually, you know, always stayed fairly involved but wasn't as gung-ho. But I started getting tweets that, People were offering me three, four, five thousand dollars for like you know work that that I had bought for a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks wow. a, only a year or two before, right. and my loyalty at that point was still more to the market, meaning like oh well this is good and maybe if I don't I'm I'm actually probably helping the market more by not accepting those because it sends mm -hmm. a signal. That like someone actually not only is someone offering three or four thousand dollars, <laughs> but someone also thinks that it's worth more and, yeah. and won't let it go. And then it got to a point where someone offered me, I think, ten thousand dollars for the first um, uh, super rare token. You know, the the Robbie Barrett that I had purchased. And at that stage, my thinking kind of flipped. So a few things. You know, uh, I think it would be insincere for me to not mention that, like. You know, I, I don't own anything. My car, I drive a, a 2006 Toyota Corolla. I mean, I don't own anything that costs $10,000 or more, right? So pretty much if anyone wants anything other than my dog um, and will offer me $10,000, it's like it's yours, right? Um, that's just the way That's just the way that I'm living. Um, so I was happy to sell at that at stage for, for $10,000, but also um, thought, hey, at that value – this kind of draws a line in the sand, right? Mm -hmm. That that these NFTs actually have some value. And I think that was one of the first major sales where people started, like, you know, the combination of new whales coming in and one or two pieces selling for, um, you know, up in the, in the, the thousands. You know what? Oh, I'm, I'm forming this in my head right now, and you tell me if this is right. The, the You know, the sales that had happened like that before, many of them happened early on, like at Rare AF1, in the in the middle of what I I call the froth, you know, which and we're in a froth now. We're back in a frothy period. I mean, when when did you make did you sell that Robbie Barrett piece? I did, yeah. And, and so wait, so when was the date? When when do you know when you sold that roughly? It was like February, I think. Right. Okay. So and so and so in so in some ways, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but in some ways that sale that's a pretty significant sale, and 
it happened outside the froth because because Ethereum and Bitcoin were steady, but they hadn't quite. There, it's not like it is now where they had been shooting up, correct? Yeah, and and I would say it was less of a performance. So a lot of right. like you know, there's the froth. Then there's like the performative of like of like I'm a collector and I'm an artist and we're gonna do this crazy thing in public, right? Or even the competition of bidders in a room with a, that's right. like hot and heavy, like trying to show right. who's got the most, like like right. Homer Pepe. Homer Pepe was like, you know, you that guy was king of that conference for right. that for that hour or whatever, he's right? He's the coolest guy in the room, yeah. Right. right, and you interview him, and he's not like, oh, I know a ton about Pepe's and that yeah. one, you know, is, yeah. is right. And even the crypto right. kitty for charity or the million yeah. dollar rose, you know, from Kevin, who's my buddy, but that was yeah. for charity. There's a difference between those um, news making right. sales and being able to actually prove out that any of these half dozen to dozen platforms that we're launching yeah. um, could survive. And I think that that's, it's understood that what we're talking about today is, you know, there's a half dozen to dozen platforms, um, you know, that we weren't sure we're going to um, survive and a handful have sort of thrived and some new ones have come out and, you know, that versus like some publicity stunts or charity things that were kind of like performative, you know so, what I mean? So, so my next question then would be, it because because my sense of right now for sure is that there is a there is a a decidedly frothy kind of feeling to 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 it now where it's starting to i mean part of the reason that i think matt and i are picking this back up is suddenly uh, i'm seeing non-crypto people um um you know vc people so like adjacent people tech people um, but not in the space by any means start to be like, uh, what's an NFT? Uh, what's going on here? Um, and I'm, I'm unsure how much of that is, is because of the, like, you know, Bitcoin is shooting up in Ethereum and it's very frothy or how much of it is what you're talking about. This sort of like almost quieter, more, less sexy, more kind of nuts and bolts of just like art market things have value uh and they're going to continue to have value is do you do you don't am i am i making that question right do you, do you understand what i'm trying to ask <laughs> i do in the way i would describe it I, I think it probably i'm not a um cryptocurrency expert but i look to cryptocurrency to help um explain some of the crypto art market or blockchain based art market because we know that the two are somewhat tied, right? Any of us that have been in the space for a little while know that their destinies are somewhat tied. And what the way I would describe it is that I, I'm of a believer, not religiously like um, you know a bunch of the folks that might be listening to this, but I'm a, I'm a believer that in 10, 15 years from now, something like Bitcoin or Ethereum is just gonna be omnipresent, right? We're all gonna move towards digital payments. Um, but I also know that day to day, hour to hour, there's massive volatility, right, in the value of those tokens. Like, you know, like it's literally, it's, you know, uh, in the last, I think I tweeted yesterday that in the last month, uh, my friends who are largely invested in Bitcoin's uh, net worth went up 40% in one month, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy and it can crash just as, just as quickly, right? So when you look um, close up at the, the rapid cycling up and down swings of cryptocurrency, um, it can be hard to, to see that there is a, a longer term slope that I believe that's that's happening, right? So why why do I bring that up? Well, crypto art I think is tied to cryptocurrency, and the same thing is kind of happening, right? So for those of us that were there for the Homer Pepe auction, when we see these other performative auctions where people are like, you know, selling like superhero images or whatever for like a hundred thousand dollars or stuff like that, that things that like on the surface don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and to, to use your language seems super frothy, there's gonna be, if you grab any one hour, one day, one week window and try to extrapolate anything from that, you're gonna be wrong because there's so much volatility. So you kind of have to try to find what's the larger trend, right? Like, you know, and, and so to answer that question, we're in a peak, you know, if you look up close, we're in a spike like we were in late 2017, it'll crash again. And when I say that, people are like, you're so negative. But no, it'll also spike again, and then it'll also crash again, right? This is what we know. We shouldn't be fooled by volatility every single time it happens, right? It's going to go like a yo-yo like crazy for, you know, probably another 10, 15 years. But if you map that out, like the, the trend and step back, 
it's going to trend upward is, is my take on it, right? So uh, maybe that's a little bit of a complicated thing, but I think people oversimplify and they tend to stare at what's happening today. Is there a situation in which crypto actually doesn't keep going up where it, where it does die and the, and, and, and somehow it's that sort of inherent belief that it number always goes up and that applies, it seems to apply to the stock market as well. And it's like what people had thought about, um, real estate prior to right. 2008 which is hilarious um because to me so this is something that one learns when you show up in japan and you realize all the buildings are new is that buildings depreciate in japan but they appreciate ah. in the u.s it's a cultural ah. thing um oh, for both culture reasons and like uh, earthquake code for example um a house only gets more expensive in the u.s and a house only gets less expensive like a Japan. car, a like, car exactly. only gets less expensive. And that's, yeah. that's entirely cultural. It's entirely, it's interesting. Like, you know, okay. sort of truth made right. out of consensus. Um, yeah. And so it's hard for me to say, like, being brought up in a world where the stock market only goes up, um, I'm, you know, sort of an inherent optimist. It's, it's really hard for me to see a world where number go down. Um, <laughs> and sort of same philosophically for crypto, it it's hard for mm -hmm. me to imagine a world where we go to not having, you know, some sort of digital payments. And the optimist in me is like, why not Bitcoin? Why not? Why not this? Why not that this? works. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think, I think it's baked into, to your point, I think it's baked into the utility of it, right? It's not a matter of just pattern matching and saying like, well, crypto's been going up, so it'll keep going up, right? Um, I think That's it's another you, layer of it. you look at the utility of it yeah. and you say everything in our life has gone digital, right? Um, be, for good reason, you know, so that we can actually kind of connect with other people and transact around the world. You know, digital currency feels kind of obvious and there's a lot of utility there. But I, I don't know, I'd be interested. Do, do you think it may not be crypto and blockchain that wins the digital currency race? Right. That is the unfortunate point is that at the end of the day, we have to contend with reality and at the end of the day that's like what people will use um the largest digital currency right now is is the digital dollar stored away in your amazon account and your venmo and your your ebay coffer and whatever it's all these like just digital dollars you know hanging out on a you know someone's database somewhere i could see a future where that you know the status quo stays as it is and your Starbucks gift card stays your Starbucks gift card, even though it is just digital dollars sitting in a database somewhere. But I'd like to live in the world where it's, uh, you know, it's crypto. To, to, to pivot a little bit, yesterday we spoke to Galen wolf Polly of Urbit. There was something that Galen said um, that, that I wanted to bring up to you, which is Galen's feeling about crypto art was that... Um, the stuff that would have the most value, and this is something I really want to bring up with you, the stuff that would have the most value in the long term is the stuff that is sort of coming out of and aware of art as a sort of what I called yesterday like capital A art, like that's aware of the history of art and is, and is actively engaging with that history in a way and trying to push art capital A forward. And I know that's something that you care a lot about. And I'm wondering if, if do you agree in, in the broad sense that the stuff that will have the most value crypto-wise in this space is digital art, will be the art that, that comes out of the capital A art tradition? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and the, the way I, I try not to be like an art snob about things, but at the same time, I think you can look at art markets objectively, right? And one of the few I generally get along with everybody, but one of the few sort of Twitter battles I got into and, you know, the person will remain nameless was uh, I basically said, if you look throughout our art history. So this person said you, you the only famous artists, you know, that that made the history books and, you know, kind of made it big in the markets, you know, often after they were dead, all had like lots of classical training. Right. Um, and my counter to that was that. Yeah, but if you look at art history, every artist and every movement that ever mattered was built around doing the opposite of what that classical training taught them, right? Uh, it's right. It, it's always breaking 
from that day's tradition, right? It's not it's not that you learn everything that came before you and do that. It's you learn everything that came before you and, and do and something wildly different and break it, right? Um, so when I look at something like crypto art, um, I think that, you know, there is an opportunity almost like, you know, uh, 80s uh, hip hop or street art, you know, um, for, for people that traditionally, you know, uh, didn't have the traditional necessarily upbringing, but will be culturally relevant precisely because of that, right? They've managed to break from traditions without having to learn all of the traditions. Um, so there's a fair amount of folks in crypto art that I think will fall into that camp. Like the fact that they don't have traditional training will actually be what makes them interesting. But then, and I think they'll be tied to sort of the, the cryptocurrency, the birth of the blockchain, you know, the, you know, that's one group of people um, that, that could experience some success, I think. What are you speaking about when you speak of that? that? Rare, Rare Pepe is a great example. I, I was wondering if that was sort of what you were talking about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Rare Pepe and the people that are Rare Pepe uh, come from the Rare Pepe community that have now uh, moved on. To, so these are, you know blockchain enthusiasts who are making art about the blockchain generally right um and they're they're embracing memes and you know it's less about um you know they went to school to learn how to like you know draw and sculpt or this that and the other and are somehow logically extending the discourse from like the last 40 years of the capital a art world and more about they're doing a better job of reflecting what's crazy and interesting about our culture right now because the capital a uh, a art world people aren't necessarily all that tied into blockchain and cryptocurrency yet blockchain and cryptocurrency are, are having a big um fingerprint on what society looks like right now right so there's a subculture that i think could ex experience some success around that yeah. and then there's a, another group that i'm i'm you know a little bit even more optimistic or high on and I, I could have blinders on. This could just be me, again, sort of um, like Matt was saying, he kind of optimistically wishes or wants cryptocurrency to go up. I optimistically wish or want generative art to go up. And, right. you know, my, my description or explanation of that is that, you know, if you jump 100 years ahead from now, or, you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that far, and you look back to the last, you know, for, let's say from 1960 to 2020, um, you know, history has a way of only the, the important big things kind of, um, you know, stick around 100, 200 years later. And we're going to look back and say, okay, computing, right? It's digital revolution. Computing changed everything we do from how we date to, you know, what we eat to where we work to like, you know, every single thing in our lives has been dramatically, you know, changed through this digital transformation, digital revolution. So given that, who, what artists were embracing the, the tools that of the day um, and the technology that so dramatically changed how humanity lives, right? And it's going to be the folks, in my opinion, who um, didn't just use Photoshop to like, you know, make cat memes, although, you know, there may be some that, that experienced some success from that. My, my bet is that it's people that actually understand computing and have harnessed computing to, to make um, art in ways that we never could before. Right. Um, so, the, you know, that to me is is you combine that with this revolutionary way to share, buy, sell, destroy digital art that was never possible before. Um, and, and its ability to open up to a, a market to, to folks that maybe were less traditional art buyers. And I think you have the makings of something that has long term cultural value. Right. So people that have tapped into the, the biggest uh, shift in our generation, this digital, you know, transformation that we're undergoing, who then sold work on a platform, um, you know, that was revolutionary and that it made it possible um, to sort of uh, accelerate the collecting of digital work when when the history of collecting digital work was never really that bright, right? right? That's interesting, right? So in the, con I usually try to think about the context of music, like trying to figure out, you know, at a base level, like, uh, are the Beatles, are the Beatles still going to be relevant? in another hundred years but then when i think about that i think i think it's interesting what you how you frame that which is if i think about the beatles and what they might have represented on a on the most fundamental level like you're trying to get at of like what like within the history of yeah music. within the history of music what were they doing and they were they were using the studio in a way that had never been done before um, and that was a new thing that that people could do mm. with the advent of four tracks and and eight tracks and things like that. So mm -hmm. in some ways, maybe that 
that ties into their popularity. Right. It feels like generative art uses the medium um, better than, say, like, uh, you know, any other sort of digital art. I mean, I, I would make that argument. And it's not just embracing the tools in the case of generative art. Like, to extend your Beatles analogy, they reflected their culture in other important sure. ways, right? So right. The, the use of drugs and things like that. And generative art, um, beyond just using it as a tool, the people that are creating generative art live sort of the, the nerdy tech culture. You know, it's not drugs in this case, but, you know, there's there's shifts. They were always on the, the front edge of the cultural shifts beyond just the use of, of the tool, right? Yeah. And it, there's maybe one third group that I'm just thinking out loud that, that I think, so I kind of talked about how there's these crypto early adopters, like the rare Pepe type crowd that, um, you know, historically sort of took uh, art and, and crypto and blockchain into a new direction. And I think some of them could be remembered. Then there was this generative art group. But the third group, you know, I think, I think, and you guys might know, I think Time um, named as their person of the year, like all frontline medical workers this year or something like that, right? Um, which rather than name one person, it's a group of people, right? So where am I going with that? Um, I think part of what blockchain has done, and people would argue that we're moving away from it, or maybe it never did this, but I, I do think it made a large group of artists who maybe never had a shot at being famous, never will have a shot at being famous, um, but can now at least find an audience and sell some work. Um, it really expanded, at least from what I've seen, the number of people that can do that, right? So the same way, you know, maybe in the future, not every single one of these people that are kind of just everyday folks that had no audience and no way to sell before, not every single one of them is going to be in an art history book, if we even have books in the future. But I think there will be reference um, or mention of a large group of people, right? So that's kind of like this time, um, you know, references all these people instead of a single person, a large group of people that were able to make work um, and, and sell work and support themselves to some degree that they couldn't prior because of some of the um, innovation and, and culture uh, developed. So it's around very Victor. interesting to me because that's almost almost diametrically opposed to to the hot take from from eighteen months ago, right? It's that it's that there actually is a a a robust enough uh, collectors. Uh, bucket to to support what you're describing, which is essentially like a middle class. Like a, they're not going to be the most famous, uh, uh, but they're but they're gonna ha but they're gonna actually be able to to make a decent living selling, or at least a decent supplemental living selling art. Is that here now? I don't think it's here now, but I think there are signs that we could get there. And I, I actually, I don't think it's so much the opposite of the hot take. It's just one of the outcomes of the hot take. So the hot take was if we don't have enough collectors, this space will be a go, will, will disappear. Right. Well, we got more collectors and we saw prices go up and the number of artists that can be supported go up. And this is where, um, you know, we ha I, I get in debates with um, Bea, who, who I, you know, from Dada NYC, who I, I love and get along with really well. I, I look, I use the heuristic that I spent half my life in art college around artists and musicians, and I knew only one person ever in my life um, who actually made a living only off of, you know, doing their, their um, art and, you know, visual art. And that was a, my wife's friend's dad was a political cartoonist, right? But literally... <laughs> Everyone else I know was either a professor or had like a side job or another yeah. gig, you know. Had other things they had to do, yeah. Right. And that happened all the way up until I was 42 years old, you know, like beginning of this year. February was my birthday or whatever. And then we saw this kind of boon, right, with collectors coming in again in the crypto art space. And now I probably know 100 folks um, who, you know, if not making like a full-on living, you know, are, are damn close to it, you know, yeah. like, you know, 10, 20, 30 thousand dollars and some you know 100 150 200 thousand dollars you know per year so depending on what kind of where you live and what kind of lifestyle you need you know and that happened in six to nine months so when people you know some people look at that you know and probably including Bayo to be fair and kind of poo-poo it and say this is just it's you know the art market supports traditional capital a art market supports a couple hundred people too we've just recreated that and this will, these will be the only people, you know, we've recreated the star system, you know, is the, is the argument. 
And I push back and I say, whoa, 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 hold on. It's been less than a year since we started seeing enough collectors and enough, you know, to actually support some artists. And we're up to dozens and dozens of artists making meaningful, you know, profits off of, off of these platforms. Before we decide that we've recreated the art world, maybe we should give it more than nine months, mm -hmm. especially when we know that um, this, this space is tied to insane volatility of the cryptocurrency world, right? So, you know, the other thing, argument that comes out is, well, if you look at, you know, data from, say, Super Rare or whatever, and you project it forward, you know, there could be a point where collectors make more than the artists or things like that. So there's, you know, some, re some research that's circulating around that. And my argument... Can you, wait, wait, can you explain that? Just can you sidebar? Uh, I think it's Massimo Fran Franchette, um, who's an a Italian um, professor who's a great guy and has been doing from the early days some really great research around um, uh, crypto art um, and, you know, set, put out some research saying that, you know, uh, essentially that maybe the crypto art market isn't good for, you know, artists um, because ultimately it'll be the collectors, you know, that'll make more money over time and, you know, the number of artists that, that can be successful could be limited. So that's been brought up now on a few interviews that I've done. People ask me about it, right? Mm -hmm. And and want to know my thoughts. And my thoughts are that um, you can't take a, a tiny window from a hyper-volatile um, space and project it forward, which is the whole way we started this podcast right now, today, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that a year ago, nobody had any interest, or let me be less hyperbolic, you know, there were maybe 50 weirdos, including us, you know, that were buying NFTs with any regularity a year ago, um, a year and a half ago. And uh, no one was optimistic about where it was going, right? And now this year, uh, we've seen the opposite with a bunch of people running in and spending lots of money, right? So to look, to look at that level of volatility across just the last year and a half and, and grab any sub-segment of time, and try to project yeah, that forward in any totally. meaningful way, that, I think, that, you know, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The for me is that you mentioned, like, the sort of middle class of artists is, is yeah, that, that curve of the 1% being successful can get flattened, to use the metaphor of the year. And I think that's happening. I do. Um, but but it doesn't get noticed by nature, right? No one writes a story about a guy who spent $10 on an right. NFT by an artist no one's heard of. Right. Um, right. But it's happening. If you look at Rarible, for example, I think the barriers to entry for artists are, are almost non-existent, right? And people can hop on and, and uh, tokenize their work. And there's a, a large audience of people that I think most people can't afford to spend tens of thousands of dollars on NFTs, right? Um, so there's a lot of that happening. And I think what where maybe some people go wrong sometimes is they hear a big story and extrapolate that to mean that that's what the whole space is about, right? Um, and, and I would argue that that's only what the whole space is about if you decide that that's what the whole space is about, right? right. You can choose to focus on the fact that someone's sold $3 million in NFTs in like 24 hours or whatever, or you can choose to focus on the fact that there are like dozens and dozens of artists who had almost no audience otherwise or way to, to you know get re remuneration for their work. Um, that have now found found platforms. So yeah, and that's the other thing that you know that I kind of hit on sometimes is that, and you guys know this, so it's I guess I'm not really saying it for your sake, but crypto art in the in this space isn't a monolith, right? It's not one thing, right? It's it's a bunch of different things. So you know we always to to be able to talk about anything we kind of have to generalize. But I think there's a bunch of different platforms and a bunch of different ways people are using things. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll expand uh, more so in that direction. So, yeah, I agree with you, Matt. My goal has always been, how do we expand the number of artists that can find a way to make a living, right? The, I always say the, the ladder in the art world to success only has one ring and it's all the way at the top or one rung and it's all the way at the top. And, you know, if, if we're not able to find a way to support more people, then this isn't really even a thing. It's just not all that interesting. Do you have a hot take, a 18-month-later hot take now um, about the space? You may, maybe you've already said it and you just want to reiterate it. But or, like and or what right at this moment is giving you the most uh, jolts of excitement? Yeah, so I'll, I think I can do both fairly, fairly succinctly. So 
the uh, most obvious yet still for some reason hot take that I could give would be that the market's obviously going to crash again um, right. and, and probably within the next 12 months. That that shouldn't be a hot take, but it's a hugely hot take. Um, it's, so it's, Yeah, it's like a third rail with, with people. Yeah, yeah whenever I talk to, to folks, um, because I've been a cheerleader in this space for so long in so many ways, they're like, and I think that, you know, NFTs are an amazing investment and everyone's going to make a bunch of money. You would agree, right? I'm like, hell no. I'm like, you should buy these things because you like the art, um, not because you think you're going to make a bunch of money. Because in most cases, uh, most people don't make any money and there's, there's so much volatility, right? So we'll see, we'll see a crash, no doubt. That's not a warning to, like, not participate. It's a warning to participate with your eyes open, right? Um, and, and, and kind of participate responsibly, um, emotionally and monetarily um, in, in what you want to add to this space. So that's sort of the hot take is that like, I, I think it's pretty inevitable that we'll see a giant downslide at some point in the next 12 months in, in interest and in, in value of these things, right? And then um, the, the second one was the thing that I see as sort of a positive. I, I almost all but left um, the community or really kind of just stopped, actively stopped trying to pay attention over the summer because as money was poured into this space and it started to grow and get more popular, the things that I actually like about the community, right, which is like the creative side and everybody supporting each other, started to winnow away a bit. And there was this trend where people felt like um, if you produced a bunch of drama or insulted people or attacked them on a personal level, you would get attention in social media and any attention could drive up the value of your NFTs because now people are noticing you and talking about you. And it was, it was uh, pretty ugly. Um, for anyone that actually paid a fair amount of attention, interesting. Through, yeah, through no, the, I totally missed this. Yeah, through the summer, you missed a good. Uh, you picked a good time to miss things, <laughs> um, and it's died down um, quite a bit. Uh, and I think the majority of the the most recent wave of people, because you know people discover crypto and crypto yeah. art in waves, right? Yeah. Um, and the most recent waves, the peer pressure seems to be moving away from being an asshole, for lack of a, a better description. And more towards the communal, uh, which is really um, maybe the only thing that's interesting about this space. So maybe that's also a hot take. Hey, Look at that, two hot takes. Yeah, the community. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, there's something too though about like when a community is small, um, it's very easy to feel warm and fuzzy about it. And when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it, it I think it starts to get harder and harder and harder to have that kind of like we're all in this together, you know, feeling. Yeah, there's a great a great article. At, at first I thought it might even have come from you, but I think I got it from Joe Looney of Rare Pepe fame that talks about um, mops. Um, and like mops are like an analogy for the people that come to the subculture late and kind of just try to, um, you know, wear the clothes and like, you know, get the reflective glory or whatever. And then so there's like the, the artists or the originals that are like, Hey, I sincerely love doing this like authentically creative thing and you do too and like let's do this together and find other people and like almost all subcultures start from that starting point and then you get to the second level that he calls the mops which like they're kind of like they would never go out and do that on their own but they they like the buzziness of it and they're like, you know, I I'm going to wear the clothes and talk the talk and like kind of be there and they're not that harmful but mops draw psychopaths, which is what he describes as the third person, who are just people that are just trying to grind money out of anything. And they see the mops coming and they're like, ah, I can sell stuff to the mops. And, you know, they come in with, with none of the actual authenticity or interest of the original, you know, subculture and just commercialize the crap out of it, right, until it has no soul and the original people want to get out of there. So, I mean, that's a bit of a negative take on it, but the articles um, or the, the, the person who wrote the, the story or the article or the essay or whatever we want to call it is pretty well formed. Um, you know, it was kind of circular. I circulated it a bit back last summer when things kind of seemed like they were not going in such a hot direction. I'm almost certainly a mop in, in many in many cultures. So I, I strongly identified as a mop as well. I said, you know, look, uh, the, the rare Pepe crowd and the, the um, Dada NYC and the crypto punks, all that stuff happened before me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I came in um, confused and, and saw that there was a culture that had already been built around it. I still don't really know a heck of a lot about cryptocurrency or any of that stuff. Um, and I, I tried to make sense of it all and wrote about it um, after all the hard work of and sort of inventing it had been done, <laughs> right? And then and then capitalized off of it and made some money off of it. So you could, you know, you could easily classify me as a mop slash psychopath, uh, but in my heart. I like to think that I've also tried to contribute to sort of the geek side. I expect everyone is on many dimensions, one of the three. Um, do you have any thoughts on like um, on how so I, I call this like the inversion of value, and I don't think that's a really good term, but it's the idea that traditionally scarcity is a large driver of value for like um, you know capital A art. You own this piece, you put it in your private collection, no one sees it, but but you and the people you invite. In contrast, the internet seems to have inverted that to where distribution drives a lot of value, sort of memetics and virality and cult of personality style. Do you have any thoughts on how that intersects with like NFTs and how maybe that'll change if it does? It's um, actually always been that way. Um, so the, the reason why the Mona Lisa is the most popular painting in the world, arguably, um, it was it's not because it's the best painting or even by because it was by Da Vinci. It was because in like 1912 it was stolen um, and it was in the news cycle and every newspaper around the world for like a year um, until it was recovered. And so it was uh, wow. it, it was the it's the exposure, right? The fact that it got in front of people over and over and over and over and over again that made it uh, popular. And um, you could, I mean, I'm not going to go into the, the, a lot of art goes back to sort of religious, different religious practices, right? And you think about, um, you know, before pre-literate societies, when people would go to church, art was used to kind of scare you into doing good things. And they'd show like people getting tormented in hell and like, you know, um, tell you the stories, uh, you know, depending on your religious background of of the, the various parables, you know, that are associated with your religion. Now, uh, and my point there is just that it's, it's exposure, consistent exposure over and over and over again, right? And now you look at um, Salvatore Mundi, which sold for $450 million a couple of years ago and broke the record, or David Hockney's pool painting, which broke the record for a living artist and sold for $120 million. Those, when those works sell at Christie's or Sotheby's, right, we see they spend tens of thousands of dollars to make sure that we see those works every single day in all these different forums, like people mm-hmm. like the three of us, right? And all these different articles and interviews, they know that there's only a handful of people in the world that can actually afford to buy them. And they could just spend all their marketing budget to try to get in front of those three people, but they don't, right? They spend all that money to try to get those images in front of everybody as, as often as possible because that drives exposure, drives up the value of, of work, right? So in the old days, there was this sense, and I think this is what you're alluding to, Matt, that the value of a physical painting or a sculpture for someone wealthy enough to have one in their house was that they were the only ones that could see it um, because, you know, it was physically, literally in their home. Um, And there was, you know, sort of like the cabinet of curiosities. um, But now, more so than ever, um, you know, so my point is that that it's not a new thing, but now more, more so than ever, Getting it in front of the most people as possible actually drives up the value culturally and financially, right? And people didn't get that. When NFTs first came out, I remember people were like, how do it sounds dumb, but it's human nature. How, how do I keep people from seeing this thing I bought, right? <laughs> right? Um, like that's really where they thought there would be value because they're like, if I can't keep people from seeing it, then how do I know I own it? Right. Or like, why is it even valuable? And that started to dissipate away because I think it's becoming more intuitive to people that like, oh, shit, like I actually, you know, people are like left and right starting their own crypto art museums and like virtual lands and things like that, because A, it's it's more fun to share your collection, but B, it's through exposure, right, that you drive up the, the value. Um, and it feels and, so natural. Yeah. Yeah. We've got more um, more avenues for exposure. So. Yeah, there's still people that are like, why would I buy this when I can see when everyone can see it for free? And uh, my response is, you should buy this because everyone is seeing it for free, <laughs> right? You know, like that's sort of flip it on its head. Yeah, that's that's exactly the the flip that um, feels novel and feels like new to the internet per se is like being the maybe sponsor of a work is like its own like. Ownership is no longer not necessarily about um, 
hiding it away or like my sense of ownership is not based on scarcity, but instead based on, um, whatever the opposite abundancy. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys followed the team scarcity team abundance thing at all. Um, cause it might've been while you were had kind of stepped away briefly, but you know, as super rare was trying to figure out, you know, how to give guidance to artists and how many artists to bring on, uh, Zach, who's a great guy, Zach Yanger, who kind of runs their marketing over there, w- was saying, um, you know, there was sort of an unofficial rule for a while that you could only produce two works per um, per a week or something like that. And there was coaching going on um, about like, you know, don't put don't make too much work and put it out there or whatever, which drove me kind of nuts as, as a creative. I was like, the only way to get better is to make lots and lots of work and put lots and lots of work out there. And the only way to grow the number of, of collectors that you have is to make sure that you show up in front of people periodically, right? Otherwise, they're just not going to know you exist, right? So you have to put more work out there. And then I think you guys know I've got this like um, history or long database uh, time spent building this database of like um, the art world and the complete works of all these famous artists or whatever. So. I decided to go and, and actually do research and analysis, right? And to see, like, you know, because it, it really makes me cringe when um, a, a gallerist or, or anybody tells an artist, hey, you'll get more successful if you make less work. It's just because I want to live in a world where artists make more work, not less work, right? So I um, did this research and I'll share the article or whatever, but you look, you know, Picasso, Warhol, the people that are finished first, second, and third, every year for, for most artwork being sold, you know, total sales, uh, a number or volume or whatever, um, all have like 10, 20, 30 X more work, you know, produced than anyone else. Right. And this, this happens at a bunch of different levels that I outline, outline in this article that essentially there's, there's no evidence that, um, that artists have ever been able to damage their, their, uh, careers by overproducing or overcreating, Right. So anyway, that I started getting nicknamed Team Abundance, and uh, Zach was um, Team Scarcity, and we had some debates about this. And there were a lot of people that you know kind of got angry at me because they're like, "No, because then people will put out inferior work." But you guys are creatives. You know, the only way you get to the good work is by. I mean, Jonathan's the walking embodiment of this, right? Yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, literally, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely Team Abundance. Is literally my, yeah, my calling card. Yeah. yeah, the only way you get to the good stuff and the only way you get better is by mass, you know, mass producing. And the other and like the, the other flip side of that is, you know, like like oh, people are only going to create bad stuff. It's like, yeah, but it's so subjective. It's one person's bad stuff is another person's best stuff. So it's like, you know, you 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 just don't know. You don't know what you know, and like what you're saying, Matt, like your friend who who said the deviant art thing, it's like, yeah, but yeah, the the other side of that is like right. somebody freaking loves yeah, that deviant I art. I really so enjoyed like deviant some... art back in the day. Yeah, somebody's like that's like their favorite thing. Right. So you know, you don't, you just don't know. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. well, team team abundance can be a lonely place sometimes. So oh, I, no. I need you guys I'm to, here. to join I'm here. Yeah, you think there'd be more than enough people? You know, I mean, so the argument against it that that people wage against it um, and push on me is like. Jason, you're trying to defy the laws of supply and demand, which are like unbreakable, right? So like if artists make too much or whatever, then there's more supply than there is demand. And like that's just economics, Jason, right? And I say, yeah, but art doesn't follow economics. Art's art's a weird space, right? And you need to make enough work to actually be able to support more than a handful of collectors so they'll actually start competing with each other to get more access to what you're producing, right? Um, right. I mean, how many collectors can you support if you make one work a year? You're going to be, you know, maybe you're super meaningful to that one person and then, you know, you could get lost. And then people would say, yeah, but look at like Da Vinci or all these other people. But, you know, they're they're just as much an anomaly as someone who produced, you know, like a Picasso, right? So, right. I don't know. I'd be, it's a... I'm stacking up all the things I want you guys to read and, and weigh in on just because I care yeah. I care about you know your thoughts on these things. But yeah. The sense of scarcity is also really subjective. Like when someone says they're team scarcity, what do they mean? Do they mean one song a day only? Because that could be abundance to someone else. <laughs> exactly. Um, or 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 yeah, or like one one piece a month. Is that scarce right. or is that a lot? Like I don't know. Right. Like for some There's people no for some people, depending on how they create, like making one thing a month could be a ton because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of like, it takes a lot of effort. It's, it's I I think, I think it's heavily driven by speculation 
which sounds like an insult, but I think there's very nice people and I value the fact that they're spending their money in the crypto art space, but they're largely driven because they come from cryptocurrency. They're largely driven by investment and speculation. And some of those folks actually turn into genuine art lovers, right? Um, yeah. They kind of come in initially thinking, here's a, a way to diversify my crypto investment. Um, and they're saying, oh, it has to be scarce. It has to be scarce because they think that that's the way to drive up the stuff they just spent money on. Um but once they get to know the artists, right, they're like, oh, I genuinely love the work this person's making. Of course, mm -hmm. I want them to make more so that I can support more. Like, that's, that's like, like, duh, right? So when you look at it raw as a raw investment, you're like, oh, no, you know, please don't make any more because I want it to be rare because then maybe I can sell it for more. Which, by the way, counterintuitively actually, you know, seems to be devaluing some of the things, in my opinion. Um, but once you become a true art lover, um, you're like, like it's a sin the idea that you would actually try to artificially uh, reduce the number of creative things you know that an artist or a musician would produce is like a is pretty much a sin it's yeah it's almost it's almost goes back to what matt was saying about about japan it's like almost a cultural thing it's 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 almost like a, it's just a it's a way of viewing the world you know right you don't have to be locked in you know like regardless of how i feel about the housing market in the u.s houses will go up to matt's right. example and you know in japan they'll go down right. but um here i think uh, on this particular topic i think it's more fluid right and i think people come in to a fair amount again it's not it's not strange to suggest that a huge percentage of the people that are buying art in the crypto art space have a background in cryptocurrency. Um, right. You know, there are barriers to collecting NFTs that that are easier to overcome if you've got a background in, in cryptocurrency. And people that collect cryptocurrency, I also don't think it's a slight to say that they're interested in, in money and investment. Right? That's a big part of what that space is about. Right. So I think it draws uh, folks in initially, you know, that, that say, okay, here's another investment and, you know, uh, maybe I'll, I'll get some of these as speculation. And that's where that, that desire for scarcity comes from. But again, once they become true art lovers, you know, or just like they're really, they're like, wow, I really want to see more of this or support more of this being made, I think it, it switches a little bit. It's more fluid. It's really nice to hear your voice. It's really nice to talk to you. We should do this again sometime. Great to talk to you guys too. I mean, I'll be, I'm interested from the side of uh, a consumer. You know, I'm glad that you guys are going to be making something. Yeah, man. Uh, and thanks so much for being here. That is it for us. We are are done for this week. And uh, please tune in in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Matt, do you want to do you want to say our our outro line? <laughs> our, our very important. Outro line that we've You're added. You're going to make me do it again? Oh, I'm going to make you do this every time. Please <laughs> don't even think that that's not going to happen. <clears throat> Ooh, all right. Uh, how, does, how does it start? It's like to remember to folks, I think. Right. Remember folks. Get nifty. Oh, God. I can't believe I made that joke, and now it's going to continue until the end of time.